Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 50. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in the gathering, in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's just, we're gonna, as far as we're going to get tonight, <clears throat> we're going to be actually covering these bunch of parables that Jesus taught. Now, he's, verses 24 through 33 are in front of the crowds again. You remember, he was teaching the crowds in our previous study, but then when he was alone, the disciples asked him to explain the parable of the soils. This time we see him again teaching parables in front of the masses, but if you look again at verse 36, you'll see, uh, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him. So verses 24 through 33 are actually being told in front of the masses again, but he doesn't explain the parables to them. He just teaches in parables. We dealt with why last week in our study. Now, Jesus' teaching here is about the harvest at the end of the tribulation period, right before the start of the millennial kingdom. We're going to take a look at a bunch of passages that illustrate that, but I want you to understand when he's talking about how at the end of the age there's going to be a gathering of the righteous and the unrighteous, and the unrighteous are going to be burned and the righteous are going to enter into the kingdom. Um, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the very end of the age, the end of the church age, if, if you will, 
and the end of the tribulation period. This is what he's referring to, and hopefully that will become clear in just a second. And like I said, at the end of the age, there's going to be a final harvest of all people. The wicked will be separated from the righteous. The wicked will be burned. The righteous will be gathered to enter the kingdom. Let me just point that out to you from a couple of passages we've already read tonight, and I'm going to show you a couple others. Go to Matthew 13 again, and look at verses 47 through 50. In Matthew 13, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here he tells this parable about how gathering a net and how all the fish were gathered. And then at the end, they just separate the good ones are kept. And the bad ones are thrown away. Now, look at Matthew 13 again, verses 37 through 43. Matthew 13, verse 37, he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Go back to verse 30 of chapter 13. The end of the parable, he says, Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Go with me to Matthew 24. And look at verses 29 through 31. <clears throat> In Matthew 24, look at verses 29 and following. It says, immediately... After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now those of you that were part of our Revelation study, when is it going to happen that there's going to be the moon not give its light, the sun will be darkened, the stars are going to fall from the sky, the whole heavens are going to roll up like a scroll, and Jesus will return. When is that going to happen? At the end of the tribulation period. And this is what he's talking about. And there's going to be a harvest at the end of the tribulation period of those who are left on the earth during that time. The righteous will be gathered, and they'll enter the kingdom. The unrighteous will be gathered, and they'll be taken away for fiery judgment. Go back to Matthew 24 and look at verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, what Jesus does next as they come and say, What will be the sign of your coming? When the sign of your coming in the end of the age, he begins to describe the tribulation period. If you compare and parallel Matthew 24, these next verses I'm about to read to you with Revelation in chapter 5, you're going to see that as Jesus said, there's going to be an Antichrist, the Antichrist, 
What's the first seal that's opened in Revelation? The first seal is the white horse, and it's what? The Antichrist comes out. Then he's going to say that there's wars and rumors of war, and then there's going to be the red horse and so on. Look at the parallel. And if you were, and we're not going to do it now, but Jesus in Matthew 24 asked about the sign of his coming in the end of the age, lays out the tribulation period, and he talks about wars and, war, and, and, and Antichrist and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Again, because we're not taking our time tonight to do this part of the study, let me just remind you that Jesus had been pointing out that the tribulation period is the time of Jacob's trouble. And if you go back and look at the prophecies in Jeremiah and others, you'll see that all through the scriptures in the Old Testament, that time of the tribulation period, that seven-year period left, and Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is referred to as a time in which it's going to be, well, actually the prophet Jeremiah says that the nation, is going to, the wickedness is in the, the tribulation is going to be so bad that men are going to be holding their stomach like a woman in labor. And then the prophecy in Malachi chapter 5 goes on that God's going to uh, hold off on dealing with Israel fully until she who is in labor has given birth. And it's not talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus. It's talking about the nation of Israel going through the birth pains. And then if you know what happens next, he says, look, this is just the beginning of the tribulation period. When you start seeing the Antichrist, the wars, the pestilences, uh, earthquakes in various places, that's just the beginning of that time period. And then he talks about what happens next. If you were to go read about the abomination of desolation, which you know from our study, that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. The Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple and he says, man, if you're in Jerusalem at that time and in Judea, and you, you Jews, get out of there because he's going to try to kill you and you better run for your life and all that. And then we get to what we just read in verse 25 of chapter, sorry, 29 of chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Stop for a second. Remember our study in Revelation? When Jesus comes, who comes with him? We do. We come with him. In power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. This is not the rapture, folks. This is at the end of the tribulation period. We've already been taken away. Jesus is talking about what's going to be the signs of his coming in the end of the age. He lays out the tribulation period for them in great detail. And he says at the end, you're going to see all this stuff happen. And then he says, the Son of Man is going to come and there's going to be this harvest. Now, in this section, it only lists the harvest of the righteous. But we've already seen from the other parables and the other places where we read, there's going to be a harvest of the righteous and a harvest, harvest of the wicked. Go to Matthew 25. <clears throat> Go to verses 31 through 36 in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then, as you know, he goes on, and I'm not going to take the time to read the rest of it, but all the way through verse 30, 46, he lays out how they treated Israel will be determined, those who survive, whether or not they enter the kingdom, or whether or not they're cast out. Now, I want you to hear very carefully what I'm about to say, because it's going to be the foundation of where we go the rest of tonight. Remember, parables are analogies that tell a story and have a teaching purpose. 
We will do well to simply let the meaning of the story come out and not try to break down the parables too much. I'm going to show you the danger of that tonight. A lot of people try to take parables and they try to make every little piece mean something. There's a danger in doing that. First off, that wasn't the purpose of the parable. The purpose of the parable was to use, tell a story with a point that you would hopefully understand the simple point. But when you try to break them down, well, first off, to do so would miss what we talked about last week, the point of spiritual truth being revealed to the humble and forgetting that spiritual truth is not figured out with human intellect. Didn't we spend almost our whole time studying that? That spiritual truth is revealed to the humble who say, Lord, please help me understand this. Give me understanding. It's not revealed to those who think that they can figure out all the minutia and they've got all the folks. Beware of all those people out there teaching about Bible codes and all this stuff. You ever heard those people talking about the Bible codes and all these different things? And I've had many Christians come to me and say, what do you think? It's pretty interesting, don't you think? And I always tell them the same thing. Leave it alone. It's not how God reveals truth. There's no Bible code. Because spiritual truth is revealed not to those who can figure out the Bible code. By the way, I took Algebra 1. I think I took Algebra 2. I don't remember. There wasn't even some of this stuff that they're learning now in math back when I was in school. Our kids took trigonometry and calculus and all this stuff. And you know how the number changes to a letter and all this kind of stuff. And you got to know all the codes and all the formulas and... Oh, it hurts already to even talk about it. <laughs> Beware of anybody that's out there that say to you, hey, if you can figure out the code, you can flip the scripture and look at this number means that. And that's not how spiritual truth is revealed, folks. That means spiritual truth is only available to those who can figure out the code. That's not how God reveals his truth. So one of the dangers is when we try to take the parables and try to figure out the minutia of the parables and try to make all the parables say a certain thing, you miss the whole point. He's telling a simple point here in this parable. What's the simple point? There's going to be those that are among us that aren't of us, and we're not to try to figure them out and separate who's from who. It's going to be taken care of by God at the end, and the righteous are going to go be with him. The wicked are going to be burned. Can't be any more simple than that, can it? I mean, you do hopefully understand that all through the scriptures, we've been seeing that Judas, they never had a clue that he was never one of them. We've dealt with this in times past, and we're not going to chase that rabbit tonight. But the parable is very, very simple. The enemy's going to sow weeds among the wheat. And we're not to try to figure out who's saved and who's not saved. The Bible says there's evidence we can recognize to figure out if that person's a false teacher or not. We can examine ourselves, whether or not the Spirit of God's within us. But at the same time, at the end of the age, at the end of the tribulation period, church has already been gathered, but at the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be many saved during the tribulation period. Those who survive, the righteous are going to be gathered and brought into the kingdom. The wicked are going to be gathered and they're going to be set aside for judgment. There's another reason we have to be careful about not trying to take the parables and figure out the minutia of them. First, we would miss the whole point of how spiritual truth is revealed. And secondly, for example, in the parable of the soils, Remember, that was last week's study, the parable of the soils. What was the seed? The seed was the word. Let me remind you, if you don't know that, go to Luke chapter 8. Look at verses 4 through 11. By the way, you guys answering that so quick made me so happy. That means that God's opening eyes. That means it's not that I did a good job. That means God's opening eyes. I love it. Luke 8, verses 4 through 11. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, 
And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell up on the rock. As, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into the good soil, and, good, and, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he was ears to hear, let him hear. And, as, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Okay? So in the parable of the soils, the seed is the word of God. But in the parable of the weeds, what is the seed? No. The good seed is what? The good seed in the parable of the weeds is what? Not the word of God. Not the gospel. Hey, don't throw guesses at me. Read your Bible. The, people, the sons of the kingdom. Look at Matthew 13, verses 36 through 38. In Matthew 13, verses 36 through 38. He said, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So in one parable, seed represents the word of God. But in this parable, seed means something totally different. So when you try to think you've got it all figured out, God's going to mess you up. Because seed doesn't mean seed in this parable. It, mean, well, it means seed, but it doesn't mean what seed meant in the other one. Do you understand what I'm saying? See the danger of trying to figure out? And look, I believe the Bible has numbers in it that have references to things. But to say that this number always means that. Mm, be careful. Because you're trying to figure God out and get him into a formula. And he's going to be messing with you if you think you got him figured out and into a formula. He's told us, my ways aren't your ways. Your ways aren't my ways. Your thoughts and my thoughts aren't the same. Don't think you can figure me out. He even says in Romans 11, 33 through 36, especially when you get to 36, you ain't never, not, never going to figure me out. That's what he says. Let me quote it to you. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever known the mind of the God and who's ever been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory. He then does go on and say in the very next verses, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that if we lay ourselves on the altar and we lay our flesh on the altar, we'll be able to know his will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. But he says, you'll never figure me out. But I'll tell you what I want you to do on a daily basis if you walk with me. So be careful of trying to take the parables and turn them into this means this and this means that. Let me give you another example of what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew chapter 16, I'm sorry, Matthew 13 again, and look at the parable on the leaven in verse 33. Matthew 13, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, I don't know how many of you have read the Bible enough to know, but this isn't the first time that the Bible talks about leaven, is it? And actually, most of the time, when the Bible talks about leaven, leaven is sin or it's bad, false teaching. That's how leaven is referenced. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew 16. You're in Matthew 13. Go to Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they were in a boat with Jesus. They had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak to you about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In this situation, when he used the word leaven, just like leaven gets into something and it infiltrates it, he was saying, watch out for the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their false teaching gets in and does a whole lot of damage. Leaven here represented the false teaching of the Pharisees. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Again, we see, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Wait a minute. I thought the leaven of the Pharisees was false teaching. Now it's hypocrisy. So which is it? Is leaven of the Pharisees false teaching or hypocrisy? Yes. You see the danger of trying to figure out every little secret and every little code? Oh, that used this word. That's what it means. Be careful. Spiritual truth is not figured out with human intellect. Spiritual truth is understood by those who humble themselves and say, what do you mean by this? Explain it. Let me give you another example. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 6 through 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, Your boasting is not good, talking to the church. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So, what's the leaven now here? It, it's sin. Exactly. It's sin. Here in this situation, they had a man in the church who was sleeping with his father's wife, and everybody thought it was cool. Folks, leaven is yeast, and if you know anything about yeast, it doesn't take a whole lot. I only know this because my wife makes bread almost every week, sometimes more than once a week. She's famous for being the bread lady, and if you've not had any of her bread, <laughs> you're missing out. By the way, I am very, <laughs> what day? Sign me up. But I really am very, very skinny. The reason I'm this size is because of my wife's bread. But it's not my fault. But I'll get right to you. What I, what, but in that, in, in what I want you to see is this. I know how very little bit of yeast she puts in that bread. It doesn't take much. And just like a little bit of the false teaching spreads, Jesus used leaven as an illustration of that false teaching. Just like a little bit of hypocrisy spreads and does damage. Jesus used leaven as an illustration of the hypocrisy. Sin can also do a great amount of damage. If you've ever shipped any fruit, if there's one bad orange, that one little orange all of a sudden starts to spread that mold to the rest of it, doesn't it? Jesus used leaven as an illustration because of its teaching point that a little bit infiltrates. Go ahead. I answered your question. Well, that means the Lord because I didn't know what you were going to ask. Go back to Matthew 13, then, and look at verse 33. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took 
and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Let me ask you a question. Is leaven here false teaching? No. Is leaven here hypocrisy? No. Is leaven here sin? No. So what's Jesus saying here in this parable with leaven? It's a good thing in this instance. The influence of leaven in bread is a good thing, and it's a good thing here, but the kingdom of God is going to start small, but it's going to grow. Leaven is simply explained here, simply explained this, um, excuse me, the kingdom of God's pervasive influence. Just as yeast fully influates, infiltrates whatever amount of dough it is put in, so too will the kingdom of God spread everywhere to its fullest, just like God has planned, even though there's much opposition. And as I was praying over this, you know what scripture came to my mind? Matthew 16, verse 18. Just turn over a couple of chapters to Matthew 16. Jesus has been asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they list all these different people. And then he turns to them and says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And as you know, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, John, John, flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. My father's opened your eyes. And look at verse 13. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. He had met him earlier and said, you're Simon. One day you will be Peter and you are Peter. And on this rock, Peter's profession of his faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Folks, let me encourage you with something. Does it look like the church is losing in the world, in our eyes? Yes. But is the church going to lose? Are, is God's purpose and his plan going to be fulfilled for all those who respond to his promise? Yes. The kingdom of God is like a little bit of leaven, and it spreads and spreads until it's filled the whole. God's work is going to be accomplished. I've stopped worrying about whether or not we're going to win or lose, whether or not the church is going to be healthy or not. You know what? God said he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. As I go around this country and I go to help churches get woke back up, I'm not going to look at it. Is the church growing? Is the church shrinking? I want to be a part of what God's doing, and I want you to be a part of what God's doing because he's going to build his church. Now, what we might consider church might not be what he considers church, and that's another whole issue for another time. But he's going to build his church. And the simple parable of the leaven teaches that. But we've also seen, hopefully, the danger of trying to make leaven say the same thing every time. It's simply pointing out its invasive or pervasive influence. Now, go ahead. Okay, say that one more time in another way that might help me understand. For those who didn't hear, she said all the parables seem to be explaining about the church ages like the church in Revelation. So what you're saying is, is they're kind of pointing to what's going to be happening in the church age, definitely because God is God and he works that way. But you have to remember, these are all pointing to the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, you know, all right? and that which is after. So as much as these spiritual truths apply, these are all pointing to the kingdom of God. He's talking to the Jews still, remember. He's offering them the kingdom of God. Now, um, here Jesus is saying that even though the kingdom of God starts small, it will grow to be absolutely huge, and he'll involve both Jews and Gentiles. You say, wait a minute, where did you get that? Well, that's because the parable, go back to Matthew 13, the parable of the leaven actually was connected to the parable of the mustard seed. Go back to verses 31 and 32. He put another parable before them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is, and it is the smallest of all seeds, 
But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make, its, make nests in its branches. Now, just like the parable of the leaven, it little bit spread all the way throughout. He told just prior to that, this parable of the mustard seed. How many of you, show of hands, have ever seen an actual mustard seed? Okay, I kind of figured it was, there's a lot of you probably haven't. Let me just tell you, if I had one on my finger right now, you couldn't see it. It's literally one of the tiniest seeds you ever could imagine. And that mustard seed is so small, but if you know anything, they grow. It takes them about 15 years, but they grow and turn into like a huge bush tree. It's just, and listen to what he says. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I'm going to say it to you again. Here, Jesus is saying that even though the kingdom of God starts small, it will grow to be absolutely huge and will involve both Jews and Gentiles. Again, someone's saying, where did you get that interpretation? Here's, here's where. How many of you remember our study in Ezekiel? Or at least remember studying Ezekiel with me? Do you give me that much? Go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 17. If you were looking at that, you would go, that actually sounds like something that we read back in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, through the prophet Ezekiel, God gives a couple of parables. In chapter 17, he's dealing with the nation of Israel and how they are going to be taken captive by the Babylonians and how they're going to reach out to the Egyptians. And some of your Bible headings in chapter 17 say two eagles and a vine. The vine is the nation of Israel. The two eagles are the King Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Egypt. But look at verses 22 through 24. In Ezekiel 17, verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it apart or set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird, in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry, dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Here God makes a promise as he's dealing with how the nation of Israel is going to be taken captive by Babylon, and they're going to then try to reach out to Egypt. He says, I'm going to make you a promise in the very end. I'm going to take a little top of that cedar, a little sprig, and I'm going to plant it where? On the mountaintop where? In Israel. Remember at the end of the tribulation period in our revelation study, at the end of the tribulation there's going to be these earthquakes, but then there's going to be this one mighty earthquake that levels everything on the whole globe. The mountains are going to disappear. The islands are going to disappear. Jerusalem is going to be split into three parts. The middle part is going to be raised up higher than the other. The northern part and the southern part are going to become plains. And everyone is going to be coming up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And God's going to take that little bit of Israel that's left and he's going to plant it there. And every kind of bird is going to come and sit under its shade. Go to Ezekiel 31. Ezekiel 31, verses 1 through 6. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you 
Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long. From abundant water in its shoots, all the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all who? The great nations. As we put this together, we'll see that as God's talking to the the leader of, the, uh, of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he says, remember, there was this one big nation, mighty nation of Syria. And they, all the nations of the earth were under its dominance, influence. He's about to tell them, I, made, I brought them low, I can bring you low too. But here we see that the birds all represent what? All the nations. Go back to Matthew 13 now. He put together verse 31, another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of God is going to start off small, and it has, but it's been growing and growing and growing, and one day it's going to be all-pervasive. And all the nations are going to be included in it again. For the sake of time, I would love to take you to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul even says that he took those who were near, the Jews, and those who were far off, the Gentiles, and he's making together one new man, one new house, that spiritual house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Folks, you do realize in the millennial kingdom, it's going to be a mixture of the church and Israel. It's going to be a mixture of the believers of the Gentiles who are gathered into the kingdom and the Jews. And we see in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 22, we see the, the city of Jerusalem coming down in chapter 21 as well. And we see that the gates are representing the Jews and, and the, 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 uh, the, sorry, the, the, get the doors are representing also the 12 apostles. And all the way through, it's a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And all Jesus is saying is, you think it's going to be a small little thing. It's not. It's going to be a mighty thing. And it starts small, but it's going to grow. And just like leaven makes its way all the way through, the kingdom of God is going to be accomplishing all that he desires. So what has he taught us so far in these parables? There's going to be a harvest at the end of the age. And the righteous are going to go into the kingdom of God. The unrighteous are going to be burned. And they're going to be suffer in torment. This kingdom starting small, but it's going to grow. And it's going to continue to grow until it's accomplished all that God has desired Now, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, Jim, you keep saying kingdom of God, but Matthew keeps saying kingdom of heaven. Isn't, aren't we talking about heaven here? No, we're talking about the literal kingdom of God that's going to be on the earth. And I can show you that Matthew is not talking about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God on the earth. And I can prove it to you by having you look again at Matthew 31 and 32. Listen again to what it says. And I want you to look closely and listen closely. He put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in his branches. Go over one book to Mark chapter 4 and look at verses 30 and 32. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. 
He said, and what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Do we see it? Matthew doesn't use the word God. Remember from the beginning of our study? Because he was writing to the Jews who felt that it was wrong to even say God's name. And so when he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about, he used the term kingdom of heaven over and over. I just wanted to remind you of that. I unfortunately was raised in a church as a young child that didn't understand, or maybe they just chose not to believe it, that there's going to be an actual literal kingdom on the earth where Jesus comes back to this earth. Remember Matthew 25, verse 31? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, He's going to sit on His throne. By the way, where's the throne if He's coming here and sitting on it? Where's the throne? It's on the earth. He's going to gather all the nations at that time and separate them as the sheep separates the goats. Folks, that's not how we get into heaven. We don't get into heaven by giving water to somebody or visiting them in prison or clothing them or whatever. No, that's how He determines who enters the kingdom of God, the literal kingdom on the earth. And like I've said before, and I'll repeat it again, if there is no literal kingdom of God on the earth where Jesus rules and reigns and the nation of Israel has all those promises fulfilled, then God broke his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because I could show you over and over where God told Abraham himself, Isaac himself, and Jacob himself, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. And we know, hopefully, that the Bible is very clear that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all died not having received what was promised. They were strangers, sojourners. They never got the land given to them. That was not until the time of Moses when it even began. If there's no literal kingdom on the earth, Abraham will never receive the kingdom on the earth. He'll never receive that land. Isaac and Jacob won't either. But the Bible is very, very clear that the meek shall inherit the earth. If you go back and look at Psalm 37 over and over, it keeps talking about how he's going to give the land and the earth back to the nation of Israel. Folks, there is a literal kingdom coming, and Jesus is teaching about this. Now, you brought up a really good point, Sheila, that I want to bring out. We have a tendency sometimes to try to read the church into a lot of this stuff. I'm going to caution you to be careful not to do that. The church is a mystery that had been revealed later on. There was all prophecies in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be included in God's plan. That wasn't the mystery. But the mystery of the church was only revealed around the time of Jesus and then, of course, at the time of the apostles, the fact that we would receive that indwelling spirit, which was promised to the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation period. The Bible even talks about those things. Yes, do these truths apply to the church age? Without question, because God's God and he's, he does things in certain ways. Yet at the same time, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God that's coming. And he's offering it to the Jews who've been looking for this prophesied kingdom that's going to come when David's going to sit on his throne. And, and this son of man who they don't know who he is, this Messiah, this Christ is going to come and rule and reign. And Jerusalem is going to be the center of the world. And the Jews are going to be ruling over the nations. And they've been looking for this kingdom. And Jesus says to them, let me tell you something. The only ones going into this kingdom are the righteous. Let me tell you something else. You may think it's never going to get here because you haven't seen it. It doesn't look like it's happening but it's happening. It's starting small, but it's going to keep growing and everyone's going to be included in that kingdom. Let's look at verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The first parable describes someone who found a treasure, sold all that he had to get this treasure. In the same line of thought, Jesus describes a merchant who sells all that he has to purchase the pearl of great price. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Is this how you see your salvation and the coming kingdom? Is it the most important thing to you? Are you willing to forsake everything else to receive it? You know, the Bible says that in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Go with me real quickly to Luke 14. And let me remind you of what Jesus says here. Because unfortunately, in many people's attitudes and their lifestyles, their faith in Jesus and their looking for the coming kingdom and their Christianity, if you will. I hate to use that term because that sometimes people get confused with Christianity. But their, their faith is a part of who they are. It's not the center of all they are. For many people, it's like, well, I'm a Christian too. No, Jesus said either he is the center of all things and you forsake everything else to get this salvation or you don't have it. Listen to Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus wanting us to hate our parents and kill ourselves? No, he's talking about how he needs to be first above all things. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he's enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we need to quickly just sell our houses and get rid of all our stuff and just sit somewhere in poverty. No, what he's saying is when we give our lives to Jesus... Our house becomes his, our family becomes his, our job becomes his. Every aspect of our lives now becomes his. We'll sell it all, we'll give it all up to follow him. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor at this church, and this is back in 1988, I actually uh, was the youth pastor here, and I remember doing a skit with a man named David Walker where he and I got up in front of the church one Sunday and we did a, an illustration, if you will, a skit about the pearl of great price. And he's a merchant and he's selling pearls. And I came up and I saw this awesome pearl that he had. And I asked him, how much is this pearl? I've been looking for this kind of a pearl my whole life. How much is it? He says, everything you have. And I said, well, I've only got like 20 bucks on me. He said, then it's 20 bucks. I was like, really? It's only 20 bucks? And so I pulled out the 20 bucks and I gave it to him and I took the pearl and I said, man, I can't wait to bring this home. And he said, whoa, 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 hang on for a second. What did you just say? I said, I can't wait to bring this home. He goes, um, you have a home? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, people live in houses. He said, um, the price of the pearl is everything you have. That house needs to belong to me. And I really looked over the pearl and wrestled with it. I thought, man, I'm never going to find anything like this again. And I gave him the deed to my house. I said, man, 
At least I got a car to live in. He said, what? I said, at least I got a car to live in. He goes, no, no, you don't understand. The price of this pearl is everything you have. I gave him the keys to my car. <laughs> As I walked away, I said, man, my wife's not going to be too happy to hear about this. <laughs> he said, hang on for a second. <laughs> Did you say you had a wife? <laughs> yeah, I got a wife and a couple of kids. He goes, the price of the pearl is everything you have. I said, okay, they're yours. And I kept the pearl. And as I walked away, he then said, hey, come back here for a second. And he handed me the deed to the house, the keys to the car, and the pictures of the family that I had given to him. And he said, I want you to enjoy these, but remember, they all belong to me now. And whatever I say, you do with them. Folks, do you understand the story? If you give your life to Jesus, he gets to pick your job. He gets to pick who you marry. He gets to pick where you live, what you do. He, if you've given him your life, this pearl of great price, you sell everything and you give it to him. But he's such a good God. He doesn't take it away where you just now walk around with nothing. He gives it back and he says, it belongs to me. Let me decide how you live your life. And I want to just encourage you in that way. Are you living your life where he is the center of everything? Do you allow the spirit of God in his word to guide your thoughts, your talk, your actions, how you treat your spouse, how you act at work, all these things? Does he get to pick your vacations? Or is he just a part of your life, but you have other things that you do? Jesus said, this, you want to get into the kingdom? You have to give everything you have to be able to follow him. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 31. It's an illustration of what we just talked about. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We're to live our lives in such a way that everything we do is listening to him and his spirit, and we're doing it to his glory. Oh, be careful, some of you out there that say, okay, I'm going to determine what people around me should be eating, what people around me should be drinking. No, no, no. We don't live for you. We live for the Lord. And the Bible is very, very clear that the Holy Spirit is able to speak to our hearts. He's able to speak to his children and let them know what he wants. He'll speak through his word. He'll speak through his spirit. You just listen to him. Whatever you do, are you doing it for the glory of God? Go to 2 Corinthians. You're in 1 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't you know you've been bought with a price? You're not your own. Live like he's the master of your life. Let's close tonight with verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Does anybody know who the prophet was that, that Jesus is referring to? Anybody want to take a wild guess who the prophet was? was I'm sorry? wasn't John, no. It wasn't Isaiah, no. Somebody else want to take a wild guess? I'm having you guess for the fun of it because it's going to surprise you. Wasn't Jeremiah, Hosea, no. It wasn't any of them. It wasn't Obadiah. It wasn't, well, of course it's himself because he wrote everything, but no, that's, that's, the, that's the Sunday school answer. Go to Psalm 78. Did Jeremy say it? Nope, it wasn't David. Sorry, Jer. It was Asaph. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, folks, but the Psalms are full of prophecies. If you read your New Testament, they quote from the Psalms more than probably any other book. It's crazy how much prophecies in Psalms. By the way, there's a lot of prophecies in Psalms about what's coming in our day, what's happening on the world stage right now. The Psalms are full of it. Just for the fun of it later on, right? Look at Psalm 83. But look at Psalm 78 for now. Look at verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob, that's Israel, and appointed a law in Israel, which he had commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. If you were to read this whole chapter, folks, you'll see that God revealed himself to the nation of Israel over and over, but they continuously rebelled. You'll see how many verses are in this chapter. And I want you to go on your own and sit down and read it slowly and let the Spirit of God show you. It repeats the history of the nation of Israel, how he brought them out of Egypt and how they kept rebelling against them, how he kept opening their eyes and showing them so much stuff, but they still were too proud to respond. But God in his mercy... And in, for his glory, did not totally wipe them out. Look at verses 34 through 41 in chapter 78 here. He said, in Psalm 78, verse 34, when he killed them, they, he sought, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. God tells in this story, look, I'm going to speak to them in parables. But I want you to pass on to all the generations the mighty acts of God. And even though Israel was rebellious, and I did judge them, and I put some to death because of it, they had their opportunity and they didn't respond, and therefore judgment came, 
I didn't totally wipe the nation of Israel out. Why? Because of my glory. Because I made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would be a nation before me forever and that they would always, they would receive the land, all these promises. That's why they kept, continue as a nation. And God for a season is right now doing something to make the Israel, Israelites jealous. That's us, the church. And he's just doing it for a season, and that time's coming to a close. And he's given us right now the promises that he promised Israel that he's going to erase their sin. He's going to put his spirit within them and cause them to follow his decrees. That's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period when they enter into the kingdom. But at the same time, we who are in the church, who have been used for a season to make Israel jealous, are going to be gathered to him. And we're going to go and be a part of the judgment seat of Christ and return with him as his bride. But listen to me, folks. God's not done with Israel and the parables to Israel were because they were rebellious over and over. And so he said, I still want it to be passed on, but I'm going to speak to them in parables because only those who are humble and say, I need you to help me see it are the ones that are going to see this truth now. They've had their opportunity, but they're not going to, have, they're not going to figure it out the way they think they can figure it out with their own ability. They need to come to me. Listen to me. So as he said he would, he's speaking to them in parables. So if their insight would only come through humility and faith in his opening of their eyes, so too it is with us today. If we're humble on a daily basis and say no to our flesh and yield to his spirit, we too will receive wisdom, insight, understanding, and light. I'm going to say it to you again. Listen, so it is with us today. If we're humble on a daily basis and say no to our flesh, are trying to figure things out with human reasoning, by trying to figure out the code, but we just humble ourselves and yield to His Spirit, the Bible promises that we'll receive wisdom, insight, understanding, and light. Let me show you what it says. Go to Romans chapter 12. I referenced it earlier, but I want you to see it. Romans chapter 12, look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your flesh, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you catch that? How do you know what God's will is in your life? By what? By laying your flesh on the altar on a daily basis. You don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but you daily have your mind transformed. By the way, how do we renew our minds? How do we transform our minds? With the Word of God. Spending time in the Word, the washing of the Word, living in the Word, and believing that God will speak as we just humble ourselves. Do you, uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I know everybody's going to raise their hand. Otherwise, you'd be lying to me. But are some things right now you would like some information from God about? Are some things you're making some plans about the future and you'd sure like to know what God's will is? Every one of us hopefully are raising our hands or else we're living for self. You humble yourself on a daily basis. He will show you His will. You try to figure it out. You sit back and think, well, he did this, so maybe that's what he wants me to do. Or, hey, Joe, what do you think I ought to do? And you start trying to figure out the will of God for your future with human reasoning. Don't think that person will receive anything from God. Oh, by the way, that wasn't me saying it. Go to James chapter 1. Go to James chapter 1, starting in verse 5. James chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Again, the Bible says God will show you. He'll speak to you. But he's waiting for you to humbly believe that he will. Oh, by the way, don't put him on a timetable. Don't say, okay, God, you got till tomorrow at noon to show me. Not going to work that way. You're in James. Go to chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, you mur- so you murder and you covet and you can't ob- obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. By the way, we're going to spend a lot of time on that next week. I can't wait till we get to next week. Sorry, two weeks. Thank you very much. It's not next week. Two weeks from now. I, when, if you go read ahead in Matthew, you're going to see we're going to get to where Jesus goes into his hometown of Nazareth and they reject him. And it says that he could do not many mighty works because of their unbelief. We're not going to spend a lot of our time looking at the Jews. We're going to be looking at us and how much we're missing out on because we don't believe that God would do it. We're actually going to go down a road that makes a lot of Baptists uncomfortable, but we're going to go there because it's in the Bible. All right. James chapter four continues and says, you don't you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. By the way, if you were to go back, and you don't have to do that, but if you were to go back and look at, Matthew, at Mark 4 and Matthew 13, 36, you would see that in both instances where Jesus gave the explanation of the parables, the disciples went and asked him first. You go double check me. They came to him humbly and said, we didn't understand what you said, just like the rest of the people out there didn't understand it. Would you give us some insight into what the teaching was? What's the parable of the soils? What is the parable of the seed and the weeds? They humbled themselves and they asked him. Folks, was God patient and has God been patient with the nation of Israel? He's patient with us as well. He's loving. But at the same time, that truth is still there. If you humble yourself on a daily basis, he will show you what his plan is and what his will is. And he's just waiting for you to stop trying to figure it out and believe that he'll show you. I love you. See you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.